This podcast does not constitute financial or investment advice. It is for educational, general information and entertainment purposes only. Please consult with your own financial advisor before making any financial decisions. You had to save 10% of everything you earned and you had to give away 10%. And that's the first time I learned an incredible financial concept If you give away money, it releases the power of money over your life. If I've got enough to give away, I don't have to worry about money, do I? And so I've helped countless people with that little concept. Give away some money and release the power of money over your life. You're listening to Banking on Girls, the podcast that explores the importance of financial literacy for girls and young women. And I'm your host, Marina Batnuala. Join me on this journey to uncover insights and inspiration. Hi everyone, my guest today is Mike Lanning, an attorney and scoutmaster extraordinaire. Mike is the scoutmaster at Troop 223 in the Pacific Palisades, a suburb of Los Angeles, and has been the scoutmaster there since 1953. Yes, I said 1953. Mike is an Eagle Scout himself and has received numerous scouting awards, including Distinguished Eagle, Scoutmaster of the Year, and he's an Americanism Award honoree. This past year, he was recognized as Citizen of the Year in the Pacific Palisades for his nearly 70 years of dedication to helping raise literally generations of ethical young people. Mike and his wife, Carol, have three children, six grandchildren, and six great-grandsons. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Marina. Glad to be here. Mike, you've been a Scoutmaster for 70 years, and you've overseen more than 900 Scouts graduate as Eagle Scouts through Troop 223. Now, for those listeners outside the U.S., Eagle Scout is the very highest rank attainable in the Boy Scouts of America or the BSA scouting program. So that's got to be a world record for one Scoutmaster to produce, right? Well, we think it is. I don't know. The Scouts don't recognize such records, but probably is. Yeah, that's incredible. So Boy Scouts of America, BSA, first accepted goals in 2019. So after graduating over 800 boys as Eagle Scouts in your troop, you were quick to introduce girls to the troop. And you graduated, in fact, at the time, the largest group of female Eagle Scouts in 2021. Why was it so important to you to accept girls into this long-established troop right from the outset? Well, having had a daughter that couldn't be a scout and two sons who are Eagle Scouts and going through scouting with those two sons and seeing their journey to Eagle, we realized that it would have been great for Dawn and she longed to. In fact, when she was much younger, she would say, well, how do I have to be to be a scout? And so that was one thing that motivated me, but there was something else. My wife and I ran a program at St. Matthew's, our Episcopal Church in the Palisades. It's called EYC, or Episcopal Young Church. In those days, it was churchmen, but anyway, Episcopal Young Church people. And we had 250 young people came, 8th grade through 12th, and Dawn got to do that. And one of the things that we used to retain and attract young people was summer high adventure programs like scouts. So we did river raft trips. We did backpack trips. We took them to Catalina to our great summer camp there. We took them snow camping. We ran Scout High Adventure, and the girls performed more comfortably and better than the boys. This was a great surprise to me, honestly. 
I sort of thought of them as maybe the fairer sex, maybe the needing a little more creature comforts and were a little more fragile. Well, they weren't at all. Their attitude about backpacking was, you know, we got to get through it. It's something to be done. By golly, we're out in the wilderness. This is wonderful. Their support of each other really helped when you were in the difficult trip. So I realized that all of this should be available to girls. I started with the National Council at least 30 or 40 years ago with our National Council when I was on the Scout Committee. We rewrote all Scout training in the year 2000 for the millennium. And participating in that, I was at that time among hundreds of others, maybe thousands, urging that we make scouting available to girls because the scouting program, we now call it Scouts BSA. There's no Boy Scout in Boy Scout anymore. So Scouts BSA, we felt, was ideally fitted for young women. Young women were becoming leaders, and the strongest part of the Scout program is leadership. Young women are the foundation of every family in terms of ethical choices. I find, and I believe, lots of times it's the mom or the wife that says, well, wait a minute. And finally, talk about serving to others. When you look at our communities, men are doing an awful lot, but I feel that in many cases, the women are the ones that are so concerned in serving others. I see that in my church, and now that we have a girls' troop, it's just natural for women to take care of women, girls taking care of girls. So the foundation vision of scouting, young people leading skillfully, making good choices, serving others, ideally fit young women. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen it firsthand with my three children. Two of them have been girls. They've all gone through Troop 223, which we've been very fortunate to have. The road to Eagle Scout is truly transformational. And you mentioned high adventure. And I just want to mention this because when you're talking about backpacking, these girls are not just going for a day or two. They're going for seven, 10, 12 days backpacking with everything they own on their backs. And they're, they're coming back and doing everything the boys do. Well, absolutely. Our scouts in our troop have a program where as they enter the eighth grade and the ninth grade and the 10th grade, in addition to going to our summer camp at Emerald Bay for a week, they also go on something called high adventure. High adventure is kind of loosely defined as something more than a week, which all the summer camps, the organized camps are. It's defined as something with challenge and some managed risk. So favorites are always backpacking. Our favorites always include river rafting, which is an amazing experience for anyone, particularly families, but certainly for young people. And they often include, for instance, in Alaska, we've done sea kayaking. And one of the most adventuresome of high adventures is to go to the north of Minnesota and canoe for nine days into Canada, 125 to 136 miles, 60 portages, visiting something like 75 lakes. It's an amazing trip. So High Adventure is kind of the graduate school of scouting, and we've adopted it in our troop as the requirement and gateway to Eagle. We can't require it but because you can't add Eagle requirements, but every scout participates, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful way for young people to gain self-confidence. But you know, there's another thing about all this. The difference in scouting, BSA, and in other youth programs, soccer, Girl Scouts, Campfire, the youth run everything. So every game, every merit badge that's taught, every skill that's taught, every little contest, even at summer camp in 223, our young people teach a lot of the merit badges rather, for instance, than the camp staff. 
So they learn them as young scouts. They teach them as older scouts and they test. And, you know, it's in that testing and accountability that I think they learn most about being parents because an ego scout is a trained parent. And that's something that I think I'm most proud of because they've learned how I think to be more effective parents. So Mike, you became an Eagle Scout yourself in 1947. Tell us about your scouting journey and what drives you to continue this truly unique form of education. I think it's completely parallel form of education to the school system. It's it's totally unique. And all these scouting traditions for the younger generations, what's driving you to keep this going? Well, I was enormously lucky as a young person to have as a close friend David Olson and David's dad Irving had been a scout hadn't finished Eagle and he regretted it. And so when I became in those days, nine years old, you could be a Cub Scout. And I got recruited to be a Cub Scout by David and his dad and Mrs. Moss. And I attended a Cub Scout meeting and I met a young man there in a great big old fashioned campaign hat with a brown uniform and shorts and long socks. His name was Keith. I don't remember his last name. If I ever knew it, Keith was magic. Turned out later, he was probably only 12 years old. He was a second-class scout. In other words, he'd probably been a scout a few months. But he was our, quote, den chief. And when Keith asked us to do something, we did it. And when Keith praised us, it lasted for days. And when Keith smiled at you, it lasted for weeks. So I said to myself, I want to be one of those. And I became a Boy Scout. And Irving, from the very beginning, he became an assistant scoutmaster, gave his time and his resources he ran a furniture company, so the troop went to campouts in the back of a furniture truck with the furniture pads, and Irving said, you're going to be an Eagle Scout, and there just wasn't much choice. I had a lot of difficulty along the way and challenges, but I guess in some ways, I kind of did it for Irving because I thought so much of Irving, and he was so great to me as a mentor, as a second dad. And so as I made this journey, I kind of came to realize that I was learning and doing things difficult life-saving. We got life-saving in an Idlewild, California, five and a half thousand foot mountain pool. It was 58 degrees. You spent two hours a day for a week getting swimming and life-saving in that place. And you, you really felt like you'd accomplished a little extra. We took backpack trips that were kind of difficult in those days. We didn't have all this sophisticated equipment and sophisticated experienced leaders. And so we were pretty much on our own. And we gained self-confidence. We gained a feeling of being able to do things. We also got more organized because we were spending time on scouts in addition to school. The second way we got lucky, Mr. Olson had never been an assistant or a scoutmaster. And we had a series of scoutmasters that, well, the first one was during World War II and he worked for the Air Force and he didn't have a lot of time. And there were only seven or eight of us in the troops. So number one, we had to go out and recruit and find new scouts and talk them into it. And well, that was fun and easy, but it taught me another lesson. And then these fellas really didn't know much about running scout troops. And so we ended up running our own scout troop, the best thing that could happen to us. So we got into books at the library. There wasn't any internet. We found games to play and we found some old scout books and things and found skills and things. And we taught younger kids things and Scouting just gave me an opportunity to kind of run things and learn how to be a leader. And I, and I kind of figured out as a young leader that I had to talk people into helping and I had to give them a piece of the action. And so here I learned all this leadership. And I came to realize about the time I was 15, I was kind of a young eagle. It was only three years. 
But I realized that, hey, this thing made me, gave me a leg up on everybody at school and in the sports. And so I helped my best friend become an Eagle and two more best friends in our scout group. And we kind of went to work on them. And so when I accidentally became a scout leader and during college, why the idea of a scout troop that would have Eagle Scouts was just came right to the front and forefront. And then eventually you found your way to 223. Well, yeah, that's kind of a neat little story. And I kind of like to tell it. It We were living in Pacific Palisades by chance in the conference ground because three of us scouts decided to room together at UCLA and Two of them knew about the conference grounds, the Presbyterian conference grounds. They'd been there camping with a choir camp, and the director said, oh, you're coming to UCLA. Why don't you live here? We painted up and fixed up an old cabin and 15 bucks a month each, and we lived in the Palisades. We'd go to then Mayfair Market, the predecessor to Gelson's, and each one of us took care of the meals, three meals for one day, and we there were a couple other guys, so that way we saved a lot of money, and we one guy cooked and cleaned up and the rest of the time you had off. And one of my scout buddies, Bob and I were in Mayfair shopping. Two kids were buying candy in scout uniform at about seven o'clock at night. We said, gosh, we miss scouting. I wonder where their meeting is. And we followed them to a scout meeting. I don't know. We might've been arrested today, but anyway, we followed them in the door. And here were about 25 kids having a great time in scout uniforms, doing the things we'd done. And Boy, the juice just began to flow. We asked the fellow if he needed leadership. We were Eagle Scouts. We could help, and we knew how to do all this. And he probably did the best thing that could have happened to us. He said, I don't need any help. Well, we were kind of, we kind of felt put off a little. And geez, here's a guy that doesn't need two Eagle Scouts. But he said, hey, there's a guy on Tuesday night that's pretty desperate. He's got five kids. He just started a troop. Why don't you go see him? And we did. And I've been there 70 years. That's how I got into scouting a junior in at UCLA, and I continued on and on through law school. And when I got out, by then I knew everybody in town, and I had potential law clients, and they were even providing me housing. And so I stayed in the Palisades and been there ever since, thankfully. Eagle Scouts need to complete a minimum, I, th- I think it's 21 merit badges. One of the compulsory merit badges they need to earn is called personal management. It's essentially a course in financial literacy, and we're teaching this to 13, 14-year-old girls and boys, and we're teaching them some fairly complex ideas, and by the end, they've actually been taught all the basic financial literacy concepts in the space of eight or nine weeks. So they're learning about behavioral finance, they're learning about budgeting with real money budgets for their patrols, they're learning about debt, compound interest, investing in stocks, insurance, you name it. Now, some people would consider these quite sophisticated financial concepts. So why do you think it's so important to teach these concepts at a relatively young age to these young teens? Well, I think the earlier you learn anything, the better. Because as we know, a thought begets an act and an act begets a habit and a habit is your character. So the sooner we have good acts and thoughts, the sooner we're going to have habits and character. And money character is really important. I was so fortunate in a strange way to grow up as a depression kid. So when I was five years old, it was 1937 and I'm watering the lawn for five cents an hour. And my parents never gave me any money and neither did any relative. They didn't have any. Nobody ever gave me money. Well, maybe a dollar here or there, or I'd get bought a milkshake or something with my dad, but 
I didn't get money. I earned money. And there was always work to be done. We didn't live on a huge lot. And we moved to a little bit bigger one. But I had to maintain a 75, 150-foot residential lot with a sycamore tree that dropped leaves incessantly. They had to be raked. A lot of lawns had to be mowed. Victory gardens had to be raised. And we had too much vegetables, so we sold them, et cetera. And then I had lawn jobs with granddad and with my music teacher. And then we took care of cars for the on the car lot. Take, my first scout camp cost $14, and we each earned it working for the committee chairman's used car lot. So we always earned money, and all my friends earned money. Parents didn't give people money. And so you had money, and you were given this advice. Well, you were taken down. I, I was only six years old when I went to the Security Pacific Bank in Riverside and opened the savings account with 10 cents. Okay. 1938. So you always had money. You had money in a savings account that earned interest. You were allowed to spend the interest on something, half of it. Also, you had to save 10% of everything you earned, and you had to give away 10%. And that's the first time I learned an incredible financial concept. If you give away money, it releases the power of money over your life. If I've got enough to give away, I don't have to worry about money, do I? And so I've helped countless people with that little concept, give away some money and release the power of money over your life, but back to managing and spending. So at an early age, I'm managing money, but I'm also managing time. I remember when I was only about 11 years old, meeting with my dad every Saturday morning and deciding about the time that weekend, doing some going to work with him, spending some time on the chores, the lawn and all that, some special time, my time, free time. We rarely had homework on weekends, but if we did, it got scheduled. So we budgeted time. We talked about when you were going to spend money. It wasn't so much just budgeting money to keep from spending money and have enough. It was also to decide things that money could be spent for because money was to invest, to save, save and invest. Money was to give away and money was to spend, to enjoy. And so all that was part of my financial management. So way, way back in the scouting, I can't remember when personal management was introduced. Scouts changed their merit badges constantly, and they had a major revision to the Eagle required merit badges. And I think that's when personal management came in. We were, scouting shifted from a rural support group. We had (laughs) corn raising merit badge. We had well, horsemanship's still there. I was trying, oh, pig farm, pig raising, I think, and a whole lot of wonderful rural <laughs> merit badges. And we didn't have as many take care of yourself in an urban environment. We shifted a little too far for a while. We kind of gotten away from our roots of using the out of doors to build self-confidence and to attract young people. That's when we created this wonderful personal management merit badge. We'd never had anything like it. We have personal fitness. It's still there and a very important merit badge. We've got first aid, life-saving swimming. We've got the citizenship merit badges, but we added communications where young people learn to make speeches, write letters, et cetera, and give them, and then this wonderful personal management. So it sounds like your parents were a huge influence from a very young age. I mean, someone taught you that 10% rule of saving and giving and and planning every week. So that's obviously been a powerful influence. Well, and Mr. Olson, he owned furniture stores. He was an entrepreneur. His major money came through lending. We played Monopoly fiercely. 
no holds barred and learned tricks and secrets in Monopoly that I don't know if the makers knew. And the other thing was, I'll never forget Mr. Olson coming in one day all exuberant because his younger son, three year olds younger than us, had learned how to make change. Well, Mr. Olson was a big, I rode with him in the front seat of the car. And then later I'd drive because he could relax. We would talk endlessly and we talked a lot about money and finance. And the guy was brilliant with money and finance in a whole lot of ways. He he owned real estate. He created businesses. He He helped a lot of people. He made loans and little investments and let people buy him out for what he put money in, in their little businesses or in our Riverside San Bernardino community. So I had a mentor, a money mentor. And then, you know, in those days, somebody owned the bank downtown. And one of our banks was owned by somebody. And he sang in our choir, our boys choir that I was, men's boys choir. I rode to and from church with him because he lived down the street. And mom didn't drive and my dad didn't go to church. So often Mr. Dole would pick us up and he ran the bank and we talked about money. So I had people around talking about money. Yeah. Very, very fortunate. Not obviously, not everyone has those great influences. Now, things have changed a lot since since you were young. When it comes to money, how did you and your wife, Carol, bring up your own children? What kind of lessons did you teach them? Well, first thing that happened was that her children are our children are hers by a first marriage, and so when we first met, they were six, ten, and twelve, and we had a long engagement of several years while things got straightened out and untangled. And finally we married. So I was 41, she was 42 or three. And so we were pretty established. We had our own checking accounts and we had our own money spending habits. And I was still a saver, but not a very good one considering. And and she was a single mom living on a very limited budget. And so when we got married, the first thing that I was worried about is, gee, I've got more money and I have more resources. And I was the one that, of course, went to nice restaurants with her and drove a pretty nice car and lived in a nice apartment. And well, was she suddenly going to spend all my money? And so we, (laughs) it was kind of a joke almost. We had this very strict budget that I was always fussing and worried about. Well, it turns out she's the one that doesn't spend money. And after about a year and a half of this marriage, she said, wait a minute, if we're ever going to retire, we have to hit a certain target every year, which she helped me impose. And the discipline and creating defined benefit pension plans in my law practice. And so it was a collaborative effort. And it turned out that Carol was the frugal person and the careful person that helped me. And we worked together. Well, as far as raising our children, though, they always had little chores and things. But at first, living in an apartment when she was raising her kids, and by the time we married, the two boys were in college and the daughter went off to college six months later. Well, it was kind of difficult for her. So what she did was she just had a very specific allowance, but then they found little jobs. When we weren't living together, for instance, Dawn was became my little housekeeper across the street in my apartment and earned money. And Phil and Chris both earned money all over the neighborhood doing things for people. So much like I was raised, there were things to do and you had your own money and They saved money and they gave money to the church. We were active members of St. Matthew's and they were too, and they pledged a little money. So it was kind of the same pattern. Carol hadn't been raised exactly that way. Uh, Carol was raised with a very minimal financial resources of her parents. And 
she was kind of busy doing things as part of their work. They were both involved in the church. Her father was a priest minister and her mom worked for the church. And so she kind of did a lot of things of that kind. And so parents shared what little they had with her. But it came out the same way. The kids were on their own with money. They always had money and they spent their own money. Yeah, that's so important for independence. Now, today's children face a very complex world with many challenges, mental health challenges, challenges with the internet, financial challenges. What advice do you have for kids in today's world? Well, you know, it's funny. I just was thinking about it as a scoutmaster of a boys troop of 140 and as the key kind of co-scoutmaster of a girls troop of 70. I don't give much advice to kids anymore. I just seem to manage adults. We have 130 registered adults in our troops. Incidentally, the two troops are separate. They go camping together, but they're in separate camps. They go to summer camp together, but they're in separate camps. When they go on high adventure, the girls are in a crew of girls, and they go on their routes and things. They may be rafting on a raft trip with boys along, but they're separate troops. Well, when I give advice to adults about being parents and to young people, my number one advice is you can't blow an uncertain trumpet. You got to have a vision. For instance, I'll have them close their eyes and say, I want you to imagine yourself in a large auditorium and you're in a gown with a strange cap on a square thing and your parents and other relatives are all there and people are clapping and you're walking upstairs, you're walking across the stage, you reach your hand out and somebody puts a diploma in your hand. You just graduated from college. A vision is a picture of future success. We spend a lot of time with our young people getting them to try out visions for their patrols when they lead them. They're groups of seven or eight. For their older scouts, when they're going to take a high adventure trip of vision, the troops vision, young people leading skillfully, making good choices, serving others. So that's one thing. I think the other thing we emphasize that I think is the single most important thing to mental health, and that's being part of others' lives, helping others. And that word help always troubles me because carried just a little too far, it messes everything up. Young, the famous philosopher, had the theory that all strengths carried too far become weaknesses. The single biggest parents' weaknesses, they get payoff out of helping kids. I want parents to get payoff out of challenging kids. We need to protect kids, not help them. And the protections need to be <laughs> very careful and very minimally, very minimally applied so the kids are on their own as much as we can. And so we, we want to challenge kids. So in Scouts, it's all about challenge. The very first thing they do is they go on a camping trip and mom and dad may not be there. They may be along as uh, assistant leaders, but they're not with their kid. They don't pack their pack. They don't pack their duffel bag. They don't help them wash dishes. They don't help them cook. They don't help them put up their tent. They have their hands in their pockets and they're standing as far away as I can get them. So what do I tell young people? I tell young people to go out and try things, get a vision, set goals, and help other people. We also have a whole set in scouting, a whole set of ethical choices and how to make good choices and a process for doing it that we emphasize twice a day in scout activities. We sit down with in these small groups and the scouts talk about what went well, what didn't, and then they ask for personal feedback, how they're doing. They learn how to give and receive it in a healthy, constructive, positive way. And so the rest of their lives, they can ask others to help them be better people and to reflect on what they're doing. And Mike, finally, 
I know you've given us a lot of advice, but do you have any specific advice for people raising girls in today's world? Raise them like people. There are certainly differences. I don't know that I'm a feminist to the extreme that says there's no difference. Yes, there are differences. I find them. Well, if you're going to raise a girl, raise her as a person. And what she needs is self-confidence and to believe in herself. So the most important thing is to try to let that girl make as many decisions and solve as many problems as you can. And instead of answering questions, fire back with another question. I don't know how to do this in my math book. Well, what have you thought of doing? Who have you thought of consulting? What have you thought of? What resource have you thought of going to? So that's number one. I think the second one is to create opportunities where a young person sees you doing something with your time that you want your young person to do. Kids today are not about how people spend money, at least certainly kids I'm dealing with. I know there are millions of unfortunate kids where that is the biggest issue in a home. But with the young people that I'm dealing with and with many others, the biggest issue is where parents spend their time. So be careful what examples you show because kids will value you and mimic your experience by where you spend your time. And if you spend conscious time every day, every week in some programs that help others, young people know, oh, that's important. And they will mimic that, maybe seek to even emulate it. That's the second thing. And I think the last thing is kids need to be taught, particularly teenagers, how to give and receive feedback. They need to learn how to ask for feedback and Families need to learn how to give it skillfully and constructively. And there are plenty of books on it and resources. We just don't yell at kids, you know, there's something wrong with you. Why don't you behave maturely, et cetera. That's not constructive feedback. So in addition to challenging young people, we need to help them with some self-examination. And then I just can't resist two things that I tell you, parents, young people, and everybody. When you have a problem, quit muddling around with how to solve it. The first thing you should ask is who can help. Just think about it physically. If you have two people working with a problem, it's half as big. When you're scared, when you're worried, when it seems really, really critical, who can help? And line up a bunch of folks that can help and they're ready and available and nurture those relationships. I guess the last thing that I always, well, gosh, I guess there's two more. Stay off the double yellow line. You know, when you're driving a car and you drive around the double yellow line, there's eight inches between you and disaster. So in your life, try to stay off those double yellow lines. Don't cut things quite so closely. If you're going to go to a party, well, come on, don't get so close to the line. You don't have to have that third or fourth drink. If you're spending money, save some. You don't need to be close to the line and living month to month, hopefully. Try not to be. And so stay off the double yellow line and who can help? Mike Lenning, thank you so much for giving us the benefit of all your words of wisdom today. Well, it's been a pleasure. I think these podcasts are wonderful, and I hope a lot of young women benefit. They certainly are benefiting in our Troop 223 for Girls. Thank you for listening to the Banking on Goals podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate the podcast and be sure to hit subscribe or follow so you can receive notifications of new episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and at bankingongirls.com.